you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Matthew chapter uh, 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. This is Jesus' prayer right before he's about to be handed over to be crucified. He's praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. So Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Please pay careful attention, uh, for this is God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he uh, write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, please turn in your order of worship to our confessional reading element. We'll be Confessing together, Lord's Day 15, question and answers 40 through 44. Lord's Day 15, question and answers 40 through 44. Again, we are considering an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. I will read the question if you please recite the answer uh, with me. So question 40 asks, why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it, nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Question 41 asks, why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Question 42 asks, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. Question 43 asks, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of our flesh 
may no more rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Question 44 asks, why does the creed add he descended into hell? to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. As you know, our catechism has three main sections. Can someone who is a non-adult today tell us what those three main sections are? Annabelle? Guilt, grace, gratitude. Very good. And within this section of, of grace, we are specifically considering uh, the, uh, the nature of true faith. And what are the three elements of true faith? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Very good. Cat. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And the content of this faith. What are those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in? Apostles' Creed. So now, for the last number of weeks, we have been thinking about what we mean when we confess the Apostles' Creed. Every article of the Apostles' Creed we have been uh, considering as the content of, of faith, those things that we need to know, ascend to, but most importantly, those things that we need to personally place our trust in. And so today, we are looking at five questions. Now, I'm going to be spending most of our time on that last question, question answer 44. Uh, the first four are um, question answers that we have considered, at least implicitly, other times already in this catechism, especially last week, we looked at what we mean when we confess that Christ uh, was crucified and that he died. Uh, so real briefly, I'm just going to go through the first four questions, and then we'll dwell mostly upon question answer 44. So you'll see in question answer 40, uh, we read, well, why did Christ have to suffer death? Now, we did look at this earlier in the catechism, but the two answers that the catechism gives us is that Christ had to suffer death because of God's justice. Our sins are sins that are committed against the supreme majesty of God, and therefore they require a supreme penalty. But God, uh, Christ also had to die because of the truth of God. Remember those words that he told Adam. The day you eat of it, the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. He has to be true to his word. The justice and truth of God require it. And then question 41 asks, well, why was he buried? Why, why is that included in the narrative? Why is that included in the, this Apostles' Creed as an important statement of the Christian faith? Well, his burial testifies to the fact that Christ actually died. Boys and girls, Christ died on the cross. He didn't just pretend to die. He didn't just faint. He, he died. He died, and his body went to the grave. And question 42 says, well, okay, we, we as Christians talk a lot about Christ dying for us, Christ dying in our place as our substitute. And if that's the case, why then do we still have to die if Christ already died our death? The answer tells us that our death is not a payment for sin, meaning 
we are dying in a way that's categorically different than Christ died. Our death is merely an entrance, that last step before we uh, enter into the bliss of eternal life. And then question 43 says, well, what, uh, what further benefit? Is there any other benefit that we receive besides forgiveness of sins from the death of Christ? And here it's speaking to our union with Christ. We, are, we have this vital relationship with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, so much so that his death is applied to us, not just as a means of forgiving our sins, but also in the sense that our old man is dead, is dead, which means that sin no longer is our master, Christ is our master. And though we continue to struggle with sin, we are not defined by that sin. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, you know, the, the idolatry, the idolatry, the, the greedy, the swindlers, all of these, these, these sins he lists off, and then he says, and such were some of you. No doubt these Corinthians were still struggling with these sins, but they had a new master. They were not identified by this sin. So our old man is crucified, slain, and buried. Just as truly as Christ's body was lifeless in that grave, so too our old man is lifeless. It's, it died. We have died. We have died with Christ. And that's what question answer 43 is speaking to. Well, now, question and answer 44. No doubt this is by far the most controversial statement in the Apostles' Creed. I would imagine that many of us who have recited this creed have wondered, huh, I wonder why we confess this. Did Christ really descend into hell? In fact, many contemporary Christians, theologians, have said this isn't biblical. We should not confess this. We should just skip Christ buried and uh, rose again. We, sh we shouldn't confess this anymore. Now, we're going to consider the biblical nature of this creed and it is biblical. Uh, we confess it. We confess it to be in line with the truth of God's word, and we'll get there. But notice the reason that the catechism gives us for why this statement is useful for us. Why is it important that we continue to confess this article according to the answer of question answer 44? Assurance. Assurance right? Assurance. Now, if you have ever struggled with assurance then you need this article. You need to believe and confess this article. But the catechism says it, it's meant to assure us during particular moments of life. What are those particular moments? Temptation. Temptation. And what's the other one? Dread. Yes, attacks of dread, which means that if you've experienced times of angst or anxiety or despondency, sorrow, attacks of dread, then you need this statement. You need this article. Temptation. If you've ever been at that crossroads, which we all have been and are quite regularly, that, those, that crossroad of temptation where we know rationally the right thing to do, but deep inside of us, our flesh longs for that forbidden fruit. We all, I mean, that's what, what we do every time we sin. We know rationally that it's sin, it's wrong, it's going against God's moral law, but yet we just long to commit that particular sin. That's the, that's the crossroad of temptation. And so if you've ever been there, which is all of us, you need this article. You need this article. This article is useful in, the, in our fight against temptation. This article is useful to assure us 
not only in times of temptation, but also during times of deepest dread. And this is um, characteristic, this, this question and answer is characteristic of this entire catechism. It's not an academic document. It's a document for the church. It's not a document primarily for theologians or pastors or, or just church officers. It's a, a confession for, for the whole church, for a whole church to confess together. And it is immensely practical. It's for us to assure us during temptation, assure us during those times where we feel the emotions of angst and, and despair and sorrow. So this is something we all need to pay attention to, or we should be paying attention to. It's very relevant to us. What I'd like us to do then as we consider question answer 44 is we will consider first what we don't mean when we confess this article. What don't we mean? And then we'll spend a few moments considering what, do, what we do mean when we confess that Christ descended into hell. And that's where we'll look particularly at, at Scripture. Well, Scripture speaks of hell. Sometimes hell is, the concept of hell is referred to in the Old Testament as Sheol. In the New Testament, uh, it's referred to as uh, Gehenna or Hades. So this concept of hell in Scripture has three main uses. Sometimes it refers to the grave, where our bodies go when we die, the grave. Sometimes it refers to the place of, of the dead, and particularly the wicked. So the place where those outside of Christ, uh, where their souls go, after they die, and then after the final resurrection, where their bodies will go also to the place of the wicked. And then the third use of hell is God's judgment and wrath. So the grave, a particular place where one's souls go, and then God's judgment and wrath. And this concept of hell is used in those three, three ways throughout, uh, throughout the scriptures. And one thing you'll notice in the Apostles' Creed is that it's been going through the life of Christ in chronological order. He was conceived. He was born. He suffered. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And he descended into hell. And so let's just, for the sake of, of consideration, argument, let's just, let's just assume that this article of him descending into hell follows this chronological pattern. So that Christ descended into hell after he was buried. So let's just assume that and see how that aligns with, with Scripture. So, when we confess this article, do we mean that Christ's body went into the grave? So that's one way in which the Bible uses the concept of hell as the grave. So when we confess this article, do we mean that Christ's body went to the grave? It would be kind of redundant, wouldn't it? We'd be saying two synonyms right next to one another in a very short and concise document. We'd be saying Christ's body went to the grave, Christ's body went to the grave. We say that he was buried and he ascended into hell. So we don't merely mean that. Well, when we confess that Christ descended into hell, do we mean that when after Christ died, his soul went to the place of the dead? And some people have interpreted this as, as being Christ's soul going to the place of the dead and announcing victory to Satan? Some have interpreted this as Jesus going to the place of the dead, to literal hell after he died, and, and preaching the good news to the wicked, giving them one more chance to repent and believe. The Roman Catholic position is that Christ didn't necessarily go to, to, to this hell, but he went to another 
area, limbo, this is where the Old Testament saints reside, this peaceful rest that the Old Testament saints reside in, according to Catholic theology, until the coming of Christ. And Christ then goes to limbo and wakes them up, as it were, and brings them to heaven. So, do we mean when we confess that Christ descended into hell, that his soul, after he died, went to the place of hell? How would you evaluate that, particularly in light of Scripture and what Jesus says on the cross, some of his last words, if you recall? I mean, does that sound right to you? No? It's finished. Yes. Why you forsaken me? Yes. Yes. You also can think of when, uh, when, he told the thief, uh, yes, when he told the thief today, I, I will be, uh, be with you in paradise. Or he says, uh, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. This testifies to us that Jesus' soul, after he died, went to paradise, went to be with the Lord. He didn't go to hell. Scripture is very clear about that. So the first option seems to be off the table. Christ ascended into the grave. Second option, Christ went to the literal place of hell. That also seems to contradict very clear portions of Scripture. That doesn't seem to be the right option. Well, what about this third use of hell, God's judgment and wrath? Did Christ, after he died, after he died, did his soul go to hell to bear God's wrath and punishment um, some more? Which, as Britt said, if you remember what Britton said, he said, he, he quoted Jesus' words on the cross where Jesus says, it is finished. Well, what is finished? Right, so that would seem to contradict the notion that Christ's soul then continued to bear God's wrath after he died because Jesus, when he was about to die, said, it is finished, meaning my work in satisfying the Father's wrath is finished. So that doesn't seem to be a viable option. So when we confess that Christ descended into hell, we don't mean this as merely a restatement of Christ's body going to the grave. We don't mean that Christ's soul went to the place of the wicked. And we don't mean that Christ's soul continued to bear the wrath of God in that place of hell. And so what do we mean by this statement, this controversial statement of Christ descending into hell? Well, if you look with me at, again, question answer 44, when, according to the catechism, did Christ descend into hell? On the cross and earlier. On the cross and earlier. Yes. As I mentioned before, so far in the in Apostles' Creed, these statements about the life of Christ have functioned in chronological order. He was conceived. He was born. He suffered. He died, uh, crucified, died, buried. But this phrase isn't functioning as another chronological event in his life. Rather, it's a sort of summary statement. A summary statement of what his whole passion, in fact, in one sense, his whole life achieved. So do you see that? It's, it's functioning not as another chronological event in this, this life of Christ. Rather, it's functioning as a summary statement of what his passion accomplished for us. Remember what we confessed about Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. 
he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Remember what we confess about the importance of him being condemned by Pontius Pilate. He being condemned by a temporal judge assures us that he took upon himself the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Remember what we confessed about the crucifixion. The, the fact that Jesus died on the cross assures us that he took upon himself our curse. So those statements about him suffering, him being crucified, him dying, and even his burial testifies that he really did that. He really did bear God's wrath. And thus this statement of Christ descending into hell is, is summarizing that Christ bore hell for us in his suffering, crucifixion, and death. So what use of hell does, is the catechism um, uh, using in, in this question and answer? Remember those three, those three categories. What use of hell is the catechism using? The third. God's judgment and wrath. It's using hell as a synonym of God's judgment and wrath. So Christ on the cross experienced God's judgment and wrath, i.e. hell. So this language of descent is, is being used in a figurative or metaphorical way. And this makes sense of how Paul thinks about the life of Christ. So th uh, if you remember Paul's great passage on the life of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, where we see Christ who is uh, the very image of God, uh, he humbled himself. He, he descends and Paul very beautifully speaks about this descent of Christ in his state of humiliation. So Paul says that Christ, though he was the very image of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself or humbled himself. And he emptied himself not by, by, not by hanging up his divinity, but by taking upon himself a humanity. So he humbled himself by taking upon himself a human nature. And he could have conceivably just become human and stayed up in heaven, seated at God's right hand, but he didn't, he didn't do that. What did he do? He was born in this sin-cursed world. The first descent, the second descent. But he didn't, just, he didn't just come into this world and live as a pompous king. He took the mindset of a servant, another descent. But he didn't stop there. He went to the point of death, another descent. Not just any old death, the death on the cross. And so Paul metaphorically speaks about Christ's state of humiliation as this descent, this road downward. He took upon himself a human nature. He was born in this sin-cursed world. He took the mindset of a servant. He was lowly and humble. He died, and then he died the most humiliating and cursed death one could die on a Roman crucifix. So Paul speaks about the life of Christ as this descent, which climaxes on the cross, which is how we're interpreting Question answer 44. Christ descended into hell, meaning the climax of Christ's state of humiliation is that cross where he bears God's wrath for you and for me. That's what we're saying. So boys and girls, we read this passage earlier, uh, Matthew 26, which we will actually be getting to uh, pretty soon in Luke's gospel. Matthew 26, where Jesus is praying right before he's about to get betrayed, right before he's going to go to the cross. And what does he pray 
to his father. And this is for anybody. What does he pray to his father? The cup. The cup, yes. He prays this like three times. The cup. Ultimately, he's, he's, he probably has some agony in his soul and about, about being pierced with nails, but what really got him in turmoil was this cup. This cup. Now, the Old Testament in Isaiah, Jeremiah, speaks often about God's wrath as being a cup of a bitter and strong drink. God's wrath is this cup of bitter and strong drink. And so when Jesus is alluding to this cup that he knows he will have to drink, he's referring to God's wrath. He's referring to hell. The climax of his descent, downward as it were, in his incarnation as he bears the wrath of God on that cross. Now, boys and girls, you can think of what Jesus and our catechism is saying here as, it says if we all have a cup. Now, think of a huge cup. Huge cup. And every time you sin, a little bit of vinegar gets poured into that cup. How many of you have tasted vinegar before? And if you have it, maybe next time you get in trouble, you can ask your parents that instead of going to your room or being grounded, you can have a little sip of vinegar so you can better understand Christ's descent into hell. But vinegar does not taste good. Very strong, very bitter. Now imagine every time you sin, a little bit of vinegar gets poured into your cup. And in fact, you don't start life with a clean cup. You start life with a cup full of vinegar because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin is actually credited to you and your cup. So you begin life with this, this cup full of vinegar, and every time you sin, you continue to add to that cup full of vinegar. And there's a day coming at the end of his, history, Judgment Day, when everybody will have to drink their cups of vinegar to the very bottom. And it's going to take an eternity. Now, what Jesus did in him coming to this earth and this world is he, he knew every single sin that his people would commit. So if you believe in Jesus, he knows every single sin that you've, you have committed, maybe you are committing right now, and you will commit for your entire life. Jesus knew every single one of those sins, and he also knew how much vinegar that sin would earn. And he drank your cup of vinegar to the very bottom. That's what Jesus did on the cross. So that if you believe in Jesus, you will have a completely dry cup forever, even though you continue to sin. Because Jesus bore God's wrath for you. He drank the vinegar of God's wrath that your sin has earned. And so that even as we continue to sin, no more vinegar gets poured into our cup because God is a just God and he can't punish sin twice. As you can see, this is why the catechism says this question and answer is so practical and important for our Christian faith. Remember, this is in the context of true faith. We are to know this, we are to assent to it, but we all are ultimately to personally trust in it which means we are to personally trust that Christ drank our cup. <laughs> I mean, think right now of your individual sins that you have committed, individual sins that you are struggling with right now. 
Do you trust that Christ drank the wrath that those sins have earned? And thus, this article is meant to assure us. It's meant to assure us during attacks of deepest dread, which means that when we're going through the valleys of this life, when we're going through the pain and the suffering, the trials of this life, we can be assured that Christ has taken the most severe judgment of God so that we will never have to experience it. The sufferings of this life is all there is. <laughs> we can have confidence that even though our circumstances seem to, uh, may, may seem to testify against God's promises to us in his word, those promises are still true because of Christ taking hell for us. Those times when we feel forsaken by God, we can know that that is merely a feeling. It doesn't accord with reality because Christ was forsaken by the Father for you so that you never will be. Meant to assure us, assure us during uh, times of, of, of deepest dread. But it's also meant to assure us during times of temptation, when we're at that crossroad, when we know the right thing to do, but our flesh longs for that forbidden fruit, What's to go through our mind in those moments is not, oh, I better not sin because then I'll have hell to pay for it. Rather, what's to go through our mind is Christ bore God's wrath, shed his blood for this sin and these sins that I'm struggling with. How can I not respond in immense gratitude and seek to honor and serve him and live as I was created to live? So this article is deeply practical. It's given to us uh, to get us through the week, to assure us during attacks of deepest dread and times of temptation. So let us, let us as a church, let us confess this with confidence. Christ did descend into hell. He bore God's wrath for us. And that is the ground of our assurance.